0: Yeah, how many times are you gonna do that? We I, just started. I just want to
1: make sure everything was working correctly. Let the wild rumpus begin, Michael. So that was an
0: ugly close.
1: This—that's what the wild rumpus is. Um, Where did the fangs go out?
0: I'm checking it. I'm logging in.
1: All of them. All of them red. Amazon is the worst. Down three percent.
0: Ark Putin to the close.
1: My God. They're gonna. They're going They're gonna. Tomorrow's uh, gonna be ugly. I was gonna say. Oof. This is going to follow through.
0: So, Peloton lost a quarter of its value today. No big deal. It was only down 80% going into today. All right. <laughs> That's nice. Pa- uh, t- Kai, we're going to talk about that. I want to talk about this with your intangibles.
2: It's not 24%.
0: right. Arc. All right. All right. All right. I'm combing the desert. The Q's gross. Apple. Man, this market loses oh
1: Apple.
2: Testing, testing. Apple and
1: Microsoft are the only reason we're not in a correction yet. Google too.
0: Oh, uh, 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 Ben and I were talking about this yesterday. This, bl- oh, Amazon. There she goes. Amazon was hanging on by a thread. Yeah, you know, and you know. Apple is almost twice the size of Amazon now. That happened pretty quickly. You know why? Since since the summer of 2000. Is it 18? No, 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 no. no, no. I'm sorry. Summer of 2020. Uh, Amazon's gone sideways. Hmm.
1: Yeah, Amazon Amazon stopped rallying in July of 2020. This is
0: July 2020.
1: And Apple has since doubled.
0: So Apple is twice as market cap of Amazon. Wait, that's which nuts. Which one was a
1: trillion first?
0: Mm, I think Apple. But I'm not positive. I think so too. I feel like that's just, that's just how the story had to be written, right? It had I think to be Apple.
1: Apple and Microsoft were before Amazon, but I could be wrong. Either way, uh, those are the stocks that have been holding this whole thing up.
0: That's not true. We did we debunked that, Josh. Yeah, come on. We debunked it.
1: I know, but still. <laughs> I know but still. You have data. I have my I have my gut instinct. No,
0: it's you gotta you gotta feel the market. Like <laughs> that counts for something. So market cap. Apple's now two seven, Amazon's one five.
1: Hey Duncan, do you know how to make coffee? Alex just made coffee. Not, fresh no, cup. not for today. I don't need any. Yeah yeah. But just generally speaking. I'm, where are you going with this? I'm kind of this? a big a big coffee person. All right. So on Thursdays from now on. I need you to do the coffee. Okay. Because I don't know how, and Alex, we learned today, doesn't know how. No, he
0: does. He does. No, we learned today. No, he's he strong. No. Nope. He had an off day.
1: Can we get like an
3: espresso maker maybe? That'd no. That'd be nice.
1: We will work with the equipment that we provide. <laughs> Why? This thing is not good? Should we get something different?
3: Uh, no, I mean, I, you can just do a lot more. It's a lot more versatile.
1: What else can you do? All I want is black coffee. All
3: right. I could do a good Americano, but, but yeah, we can do it,
1: that. Is Americano... uh a fancy way of saying black coffee? Pretty much. Okay. Man.
0: So, I can't get over this Peloton shit. It's, if
1: I could, if I knew how to do it, I 100% would do it. It's not about delegating coffee responsibilities to anybody. I just don't know how.
0: Negative lifetime total return for for, for Peloton since going public.
1: Dude, you are so obsessed with this stock.
2: I can't look away.
1: <laughs> I'm not on Twitter. Is Michael tweeting about Peloton daily? No.
2: As I, we speak right I, now. No, he yeah.
1: his hot tweets <laughs> right now about it? No, I did
0: two today, which is two too many, but I couldn't help it.
1: Do you use your Peloton still? Use it last night. Not to brag. Do you use it? Do you use it as much as you were using it, like let's say a year ago?
0: Um,
1: and you were doing like you were on it all the time.
0: I felt oh, Netflix down eight percent after hours. Awesome. Uh, yeah, I'm riding, bro.
1: What happened to Netflix? Same same store Ozarks. Uh, we down.
0: They're cutting production of all uh, future projects like Stop it. like Peloton. Stop it. Uh, Netflix just hired McKinsey. <laughs> down oh man what happened ozark missed is netflix down 56 dollars stop dude that doesn't matter what is it he talks about dollars whether a stock is a
1: hundred or a thousand he's (laughs) like oh man ford's down two bucks well no i would be like oh ford's down two bucks no big deal and then you would be like that's 10 (laughs) percent so here's why i was a stockbroker okay so for 10 years, my first 10 years of my career, the only thing that mattered were how many dollars up or down stocks yeah, were. And he also- You can't, he can't help it. There were no $1,000 stocks. So when you said dollars, it was always relevant. Like if, let's, let's say most stocks were $50, yep. $30. So if you said like such and such stocks up $4, right. it was probably a big deal. Yep. And now we have stocks that trade at- you know, thousands $1,200 $1, $1, yeah, 400000 that's that found the inflation <laughs> right Mike gets so mad I'm like oh my god Amazon's up $20 he's like are you kidding me <laughs> I, can't, I can't lose it I can't help it but still doesn't $55 a share sound like a lot for Netflix 50 what's fi, what? I'm just saying it sounds like a lot of points that it's going okay,
0: down okay it's a $500 stock speak oh.
1: speak. I know so it's 12 I,
0: I know it's a, that a lot by the way here's another one Netflix you know, Netflix since really 2018 has been a crap stock.
1: It doesn't feel that way. Has it been sideways since here? Oh, it just gave back all its gains back to 20, back to late 2020 though.
0: Yeah, but I'm saying go back to 2018.
1: That's it's almost, so what was that four years? It was it was 416. It's 449 after the close since
0: the summer of 2018. Yeah. Netflix has underperformed Big Lee,
1: And that's pre-squid game. <laughs> you a squid game guy?
2: I never got into it.
1: No? No. Guys, we were temporarily obsessed. Yeah, so, it, was a not for long. it was a phase. I liked squid game. Yeah, I did too. Do
3: you want to wear the mask?
2: Spiders are up. The, S- the, the S&P
3: is yeah. up
0: 60% since mid-2018. Netflix is up 20% before this earnings report. So that's since 2018. Netflix is about to be up 10% compared to 60 for the S&P. Since when? 18? The middle of 2018. It's a long time. Does anybody think that? Massive, massive, massive. When did Disney Plus come out? Uh, 2019. I was just looking at this. Disney Disney has sucked also. When did
1: HBO Max come out? 20?
0: But, what AT&T has sucked also. But Disney has had its own issues aside from, I mean, Disney Plus kept it alive, basically. Imagine what Disney would have done without Disney Plus.
2: $50. Fifty dollars. <laughs> it, no, no, it would be a fifty dollars stock. No, it would be a fifty dollars
1: stock. It went to 85 ni- It went to eighty five. You don't think if they had, if they didn't have Disney Plus kicking ass, that could have gotten down to fifty bucks? I feel like it easily could have. So look at this. Since Netflix
0: peaked in twenty eighteen, it peaked at four twenty three. What's it at right now in the after hours? That's what I want to know.
1: Four four forty nine. Don't get triggered. Down fifty five dollars.
0: No, that's today. Why isn't it showing me after hours? Hello, I go to Yahoo Finance. Old school.
1: It's down fifty nine dollars or eleven point seven five. Okay, what's the price? Four four forty eight. Shut up!
0: <gasps> oh it's my bad. god, that's where it was in twenty eighteen.
1: Yeah, it's bad. How? No, the question is, how many subs have they added since twenty eighteen that are now fifty million? But I'm saying, like, that are now being counted as, like, who cares if it's back to that level. The average sub now is worth less to Wall Street than it was then, obviously, but by how much? Mm-hmm. So
0: literally three and a half years, the stock is flat.
3: Can Can I just point out that this is basically the show you talked about on one of your thoughts where we watch Michael react to stock charts? I'm aghast.
0: <laughs> Netflix, one of the Fang stocks, is
1: flat since 2018. So why don't you buy it? Would, you buy, buy it. would you buy this stock? Would you want to be invested in Netflix? I don't own it. Not right now. Well, not. I I get that it's going down. You want to buy it when it's going up. But
0: do I think the price will be higher in five years? I don't know. That's not how I I don't. I don't think about that way with individual stocks. I'm not trying to get married to Netflix.
1: Two hundred twenty-five billion dollar market cap.
0: Not anymore. Down ten percent. Two hundred billion. See how the math I just did. Two hundred billion dollars. Crazy.
1: So it peaked the week before Thanksgiving.
0: So Kai, would you say that picking stocks is hard?
2: Yes. That's my contribution to this conversation.
1: (laughs) 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 All right, we ready to go? Let's do this. We are ready. Three claps. All right. I
0: feel like this was way too much me in the cold open.
1: You got excited about this. Very excited. We really love these, like, after-hours reactions. Episode 30. Welcome to The Compound and Friends. All opinions expressed by me... Michael Batnick and our castmates are solely our own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Today's
0: episode is brought to you by Funrise. Fundrise makes high-end private market real estate investing effortless and accessible to everyone. Thanks to Fundrise, anyone can invest, accredited or not accredited, and you can manage your investments from your phone. Fundrise is the latest example of how technology can harness the power of large populations to disrupt institutions. With more than 1 million users and over $7 billion worth of assets transacted on, Fundrise is already the largest direct-to-investor real estate investor platform, and they're giving individuals the potential upside of an asset class that was mainly reserved for institutions and high net worth individuals for decades. If you want to learn more, go to fundrise.com compound. Again, that's fundrise.com slash compound.
1: All right, compound and friends, is episode 30 already? It is. Really? It, it is. only seems like 22 or 23. <laughs> It's 30. All right. Uh, episode 30, for those of you guys who have been listening since the summer of 2021. I think we, when did we started, May of 21? June. June of 21. We, we appreciate you guys. We had a, a breakout week in uh, downloads this past weekend. The weekend before was a, a great week. And the momentum really seems to be building. And th- just want to say thank you so much. And we are about to go on a run of amazing guests and great shows starting today. Michael, introduce our special guest. Kai Wu. Kai. Pause, pause, for Stop. Get get, get out of here with that. All right. Come on. I'm excited. I was
0: introduced to your work by Phil Huber tweeted out one of your posts a few weeks ago, months ago. I read it and I said, where has this person been all my life? How is this the first time that I'm discovering your work? Because the quality of it blew me away. It's not like anything that I've seen. So you're doing some really unique shit. So why don't you just give us uh, a quick background? Who
2: are you for the audience?
1: Now you have to live up to that intro. You have to really dazzle everybody. Give us like a 15 second Well, I've been here the whole time
2: just hiding in Brooklyn. (laughs) So yeah, no, I I started my career at GMO. um, So I was in Jeremy Grantham's asset allocation team. um, Left in 2014, did some crypto on the side and then- Time out.
1: So you guys all wear black robes with hoods on that that asset (laughs) allocation team. What- What is it like being on Jeremy Grantham's asset allocation team? Tell us about that. If
2: I told you, I had to kill you.
1: Okay. Besides the (laughs) secret parts, what are like the the parts that maybe people would be interested to hear? You know, I'll I'll show you a lot of fans of uh, of GMO's research listening. So no,
2: no, um, it was awesome. You know, it was a great time. I learned so much. Jeremy was a great mentor, and you know the group is super cerebral, super intellectual, Um, and. You know, very transparent, very willing to kind of educate and teach their clients um, and their analysts. By the way, um, you know the ways of the world. So it was you know great. What did you come in there history.
1: to do? You came in to be an analyst.
2: Yeah. So I came straight out of college. Um, so I graduated in two thousand nine. So you and I both the- went to Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Michael um, went
1: to the gift shop, but you, you uh, matriculated.
2: We had the same. We had the same hoodie. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, you no. Know, so I, I graduated in two thousand nine. Um, ended up. Doing some internships on Wall Street, and that got me interested in finance and investing. I, as a result, did my senior thesis in economics um, with Ken Rogoff on financial crisis, okay. and that kind of was a natural entry point into GMO, since you know a lot of the work they do is around spotting Ro- Rogoff bubbles. was
1: a Harvard professor.
2: That's right. Yeah, so okay. he wrote a really interesting book with um, Carmen Reinhart. Yep. Where they looked at like the history of hundreds of years of financial crises, pulled together all this data, and then the idea was, can we spot X, ante these crises due to buildups, imbalances in you know asset prices, credit, um, external accounts, etc. Right. Um, so that was the whole idea there. And when I landed at GMO, I ended up working for this guy named Edward Chancellor. So Ed wrote a book called Devil Take the Hindmost. Oh yeah. <laughs> Wait, can we can we I go back that. to
1: Rogoff and, and what what was the what was the other professor that he worked with his name?
2: Oh, Carmen Reinhardt. Yeah, Reinhardt and Rogoff. Yes, right. Now yeah.
1: there there was a huge controversy about like huge. they missed an Excel uh uh thing. And it invalidated a lot of their research. Do you want to apologize for that? What? Was that you? That was definitely my fault. So I take full responsibility. Well, you were like the intern. So did you <laughs> the Excel up or not? Is I think we want to start there.
2: Well, first of all, I was not involved with that project. Okay, sure. This, this sure, you were. Sure. Really project. Yeah. Where um, were you
1: then? Okay, go on.
2: I was probably <laughs> in high school.
1: <laughs> okay. Um, all right, but I did remember. I did remember something about that only because I think Barry interviewed. Did Barry interview? Probably. It was 20, Robo. like
0: twenty. 20- all right. Thirteen, maybe. Okay. But wait, Edward Chancellor. I love that. The Devil Takes the Hindmost is one of my favorite ec- like financial history books ever. Yeah,
2: he's as the man. Yeah, I
0: what, didn't realize that he was still like. I thought that. Was, what's, I don't, that book, what's that book about? It's hi- a hist- uh, investing history. It's The book. Devil Takes the Hindmost. Yeah, it's a history of all the, the biggest bubbles. It's awesome.
3: Okay.
0: In my mind, I, that book sort of is like a, a cousin of uh, of uh, Peter Bernstein's book. Um. Uh. Oh my God. What's Peter Bernstein's book about risk?
2: You're not talking about meeting against the gods. Against the gods. Against the against gods. gods. Yeah. yeah, to
0: me, it's like a sister book to that.
2: Yep.
1: Against the gods, great.
0: Yeah. So what do you have to do with Edward Chancellor?
2: So Ed worked at GMO. Oh. He was buddies with Jeremy Grantham. They're you know both British. And he actually ended up kind of being an unofficial advisor for me on my thesis. And so he pulled me into GMO. And you know, for the first you know few years there, I worked with him exclusively on these types of problems.
0: There's nothing scarier than a bear with a British accent. <laughs> Between
2: yeah. Montier... I'd
1: take and- 5% off my portfolio anytime somebody with a bit ba- like a bear with a British accent that's so con- got like so that. So convincing. No, but also that it has that pedigree, like from GMO or from Harvard or like whatever.
0: Like Icon getting bearish with like his Queen's accent doesn't really scare me. <laughs> yeah, Right? Yeah. It's like, yeah, whatever.
1: Icon-, Icon came on TV in 2015. He says, these ETFs, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> like that was his thesis. I don't know about all this. Doesn't sound good. And uh, No, he called
0: him a powder keg. I remember that. He called junk bonds a powder yeah, keg. Yeah, he went a
1: little bit further. He did an infomercial against ETFs, uh, Danger Ahead. Oh, boy. And I think he called out Larry Fink. I remember that. Mm. And Larry Fink was a systemic risk. And I think that's when BlackRock had, I don't know, $2 trillion under management. Now it's about 10 yeah. Uh But, but probably, a, I don't know if we
2: should right, worry. So, Kai, more. you
0: left GMO because uh, you wanted to, well, why did you leave GMO? Well, whatever. You left GMO. Where'd you go?
2: So I went, started a crypto, little trading strategy on the side. But then the big thing I did is I went, I actually, I guess in hindsight, made the mistake of shutting that down to go back into traditional finance. Um, At the time, I thought, you know, the market was pretty small. It was, the strategy was making money, but it was unlikely to necessarily grow. What year was this? This was 2014. Um, Almost super early. April 2014.
1: Wait, so you, you came
2: up with a crypto investing strategy. That's right. So okay. the idea was, you know, at the time, you know, there weren't that many t- coins you could trade. There were maybe seven or so, yeah. um, but there were a bunch of exchanges that had cropped up. Um, you know, Coinbase is one of the survivors, but there are a bunch that you know didn't make it out. Yeah, Mt. Gox. <laughs> Mt. Gox. Sure. Yeah, exactly. And the there was an opportunity to arbitrage across exchanges. So that was one strategy we did. We did triangle trades. So like in FX, the common, you know, Kiwi, Aussie, and and dollar. Right, looking for you know mispairings there, so we were able to do that as well. And then wildly
1: just, inefficient market. Wildly inefficient. Some exchanges you're trading against the exchange, some you're trading with counterparties. Like just it's it was All complete wild plus. west. Yeah.
2: It was completely inefficient, but it was still very small. So while the Sharpe ratio was very high, the amount of money you could take out on any given day was you know capped. Right. And so my thought was, look, one of two things can happen: either the market will grow but become efficient. Or it will stay small and inefficient, but never get to the point where one can truly make a build a business off of it. O- off obviously, of those minor inefficiencies. Yeah, obviously, I, w- I was wrong because uh, yeah. it grew big and stayed inefficient. Yeah, um, but that's a story for another day. I would
1: argue it's gotten maybe even more inefficient.
2: Yeah, as you know, a lot of retail, a lot of you know, money is kind of eighty six hundred coins now. Right.
1: So, so there's not there's not eighty six hundred people that actually know what they're doing. Right.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly. Let's <laughs> just put it that way.
1: <laughs> and I'm definitely not one of them either. All right, so I want to talk about Sparkline Capital and then get into all the great stuff we're going to do today. Okay. So that's your, so you went back to traditional finance. It was a hedge fund, more success. You're super smart, but you realize like my work's not been done uh, that I really wanted to do. So now you're back into crypto. You moved out of Boston. You're in Brooklyn, crushing it right now, like on the content side, which we'll talk about. But like now you're set up to do what you've, always wanted to do and these markets have gotten bigger, more liquid, and there's much more interest in is that really what you were waiting for for like oh, now there's a, a potential business here, there's a lot of people that want to invest in this?
2: Yeah, so if you, if you step back, really what I consider my core competency is actually AI. And I know this is kind of a same. It kind of breaks the <laughs> breaks breaks the narrative yeah. here, but um, you know, actually Sparkline was set up to be an equity fund, an equity shop. Um, so yeah, I Actually, did some macro in between. So after I wound down the crypto fund, I started a hedge fund in Boston called Kaleidoscope Capital um, with one other guy from my team. We traded options like vol arbitrage and futures. And I left, sold my business, sold my stake, and started Sparkline. The you know idea here is we our mission is to kind of help our clients and help investors navigate the wave of technological change that's railing markets. And for us, in addition to managing money, our you know, idea is let's share ideas back to the community. And so, as a result, we do publish this monthly or so newsletter where we kind of use AI and machine learning in order to you know try to help understand what I call the intangible economy
1: right. so that that seems to be like the new generation of people who are launching uh, strategies, funds, whatever you want to call them. They seem to be much more willing to want to have a two-sided conversation in social media, with the public. Yep. I don't know how much of that is because that's like really their only way to get known versus they gen- genuinely are deriving insights they wouldn't otherwise get because they're willing to talk to experts from all over the world in a public forum. And Kathy talks a lot about that with um with Arc, mm-hmm. And I, I think it kind of was dual purpose. It got her name out there a little bit more because she was like out there herself. But then also I feel like they probably did produce – interesting investment insights just because they were sharing their research and getting feedback?
2: Yeah, it's like the tech idea of the minimum viable product, right? You yeah. want to ship quick so that you can get feedback from the market. Is this idea good or not? And okay. I think by putting stuff on the internet and, you know, subjecting yourself to the- uh, yeah. um everyone's <laughs> to, really nice about the, it. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. To get trolled, be willing to put yourself to get trolled.
1: You don't have trolls yet. Your, your first like 10 billion, they're going to come. They're, they're going to be trolled, okay. They're going to come. You yeah. should be okay. I welcome then. that. Yeah, yeah, you you should be okay until then. All right, so Sparkline is so you're based out of New York, and what's the what's like the main thing that your investors know you for? Like,
2: I'd say intangible assets. Okay, right. So the, my my whole idea here is look, I started as a value investor, and um, you know, but the world has changed so much, right? Since Ben Graham wrote Security Analysis in the '30s. Yeah. Um, you know, the biggest companies today are not railroads. They're not steel mills, not textile companies. They yeah. are Google, Facebook, Amazon, as you, we talked about companies whose value does not reside in their physical assets, but in their intangibles.
0: Can we pause here for a second? Because I think this is super important. And to me, this is what GMO has gotten wrong is their approach about like mean reversion and profit margins, missing this part of what you're talking about, the intangibles and the way, like the structural forces in the market. So, I'm kind of curious why they haven't incorporated, not just they specifically, but just people like that haven't incorporated this into their analysis. You talk about intangibles like brand equity, human capital, intellectual property, network effects, and you quantify all of that. Why aren't other old school value investors up on this?
2: Yep. So I think it has to do with dogma. It has to do with this kind of tradition, religion, kind of your strict constructionalists. People say, look, Ben Graham said that price to book is value, and therefore that's what we're going to use. I think- you know, as the world has changed, accounting has not kept pace, and as a result, value investing has not kept pace. So there's this whole movement which you know has started to pick up some steam. The idea that you know maybe R and D, which is currently considered an expense that's taken out of revenue, it when using, should be considered should be capitalized in order okay. to create an asset on a balance sheet in the same way that say capex, like physical capex, is. And I think you know people go both ways on this, and there's some debate. But I think this kind of underscores this whole idea that. Accounting is, you know, by nature very conservative and hasn't really uh, attempted to adapt their ideas to some right. of the changes. So, Jeremy saying.
1: Grantham and a lot of the other people who have not incorporated this um, are really smart, though. Isn't it possible that they looked at this and they said, you know what? We do understand that, for example, Domino's Pizza has a lot of brand value, which is why maybe it should sell above the SP 500. And we can't quantify, like, how much people love the brand. And then all of a sudden, the founder of Domino's Pizza is unveiled as a neo-Nazi or something. And then all that brand value disappears overnight. And then what are you left with? The value of the pizza ovens, whatever real estate they right. might have, and then all the debt and you know whatever. So maybe like these very smart people, they're fully aware of these intangibles, but then they've gone the next step and they've said, but I don't care. I don't want to invest based on that because I think intangible is another way of saying ephemeral. Yep. Is that possible?
2: No, I think that's totally Papa, true. I shouldn't and have said
1: Domino's. I should have said Papa John's. Papa John's would have been Which literally example. happened. <laughs> no, it didn't. He's not a neo-Nazi. I forget what he did wrong. It was not good. Uh, maybe it was something sexual.
2: Maybe something
1: racist. Racist, sexual, whatever. Yeah. But the point stands. Like, isn't yeah. that a valid uh, comeback to that?
2: Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I'm friends with Michael Mobison yeah. um, and he's talked about this The kind of idea that the salvage value of intangibles might be lower, right? Sure, you can sell off your patent portfolio if your business goes under, but even then it, it'll probably be a fire sale. It's difficult to, the secondary market for these assets is not as established as um, for physical assets. Right. So I think there's certainly some more risk on the downside in, in the event of a situation as you describe. Um, I think the big thing for me is- Or
1: IP. Like think about what was, what was the intangible value of BlackBerry's IP in 2006- 15 days before Apple announced the iPhone. I'm sure it was much higher right. uh, than it was two years later.
2: Yeah, technological obsolescence. Although right. that could be also the case with factories, right? You could build a factory that's outfitted in a certain way and you invest $100 billion in building this fab Fair. or whatever and then right. that becomes obsolete, but right. point taken. I think the big thing for, in the on the accounting world, the reason why they don't do this and you know, one of the problems is the link between the amount of money you put in and what you get out is kind of unchained and unhinged in the sense of intangibles, right? So like, you know, you could be running a startup out of your mom's garage and, you know, you put in, you know, a million dollars of venture money and invent the next Google search. And I could be sitting here and I put a billion dollars in an R&D project that works, it's worth zero, right? Yeah. Same with brand, like some campaigns go viral off no money and others, you know, end up backfiring, like, you know, some kind of Peloton ad, or you have, you know, Hires right. I I could hire two employees. One could become the next Mark Zuckerberg, and the next could be like the next like next like Jeff Skilling. How do you so right? How do you assign a dollar value to that in advance? And you can't do it based off historic costs. So I think that's where kind of the industry runs into that dead end, right? Everyone's saying let's take accounting data and transform it in a way where we can now incorporate intangibles into our framework. But the problem is just by definition, accounting is based off historic cost. And when the link between historic cost and the actual value of the in- invested capital – Right, then capital, smoke coming
1: out of their ears. They can't right. make the two things ma- – they can't make the two things meet. Right. OK.
2: So, so going to what Mike was saying, you know, the way I've come up with valuing these intangible assets is by looking at the outcome, the output of the R&D directly. So I look directly at patent data. I look directly at LinkedIn and, and job posting to say, you know, who is this company actually hired? Right. What IP has this company actually created, um, as opposed to saying how much money have they spent on HR?
1: How do you quantitatively value the people that were hired at a company? Like, are you are you writing software to be able to take the sum total of these people's experience and where they came from and assign a value to that, or do I not? Am I misunderstanding?
2: Yeah, that's a large component of what we do. So the nice thing about you know the world we live in today is pretty much all things are, all information is digital. Yeah. So you can actually look on like LinkedIn, let's say, and say, hey, so-and-so used to be a stockbroker and, you know, went to so-and-so this college. Oh, and my then- intangibles
1: are zero. Don't even, <laughs> don't even use me as, let's use you. You went to Harvard. What does that do for your intangible value to a company in a quantitative way? But, I, I would assume it puts, it puts the number higher. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to speak. I don't want to like. Like how valuable are you right now? I guess what
2: we're <laughs> asking. <laughs>
1: No, but you know, you know what I'm asking
2: yeah. you. Yeah, no, no, um, look. the And then the, we'll do Duncan, but, <laughs> but let's, do, let's, do you,
1: let's do you first.
2: The, the, see, the way I think about this is like sports, right? Yeah. You, you want to build a team of the best players in all positions. And so ideally, you do some kind of money ball, right? Where you're looking at all these guys, you make them do like the NFL combine. You say, how good is this guy at his position? The right. problem is in business, you can't do that, right? There's, you know, maybe you can make someone take a coding test, but for all intents and purposes, the way to assess people is not so obvious, so what I do instead is I look at sign- signaling value. So like st- the value that you finding somebody having passed certain, like, hurdles with regards to, like, their hiring and educational, you know, gatekeepers, et cetera. So, look, I'm, I'm not saying that Harvard people are better by any means. That's not, like, the point.
1: Uh, I'll, I will stipulate it, though. Yeah,
2: I, I know a lot of Harvard people, and I, so I can speak from experience.
1: Okay.
2: Um, that being said, Just like, better it's— better than Yale, definitely. Definitely right. better than Yale, yes. Right. <laughs> right. It's a hard school to get into, and, you know, even harder is, I, you know, talking about this, about this in my paper, you know, Google, they are 25 times harder to get into than Harvard. 25 times, yeah. That's crazy. And so just being hired into Google, even as like a junior role, where you end up afterwards says a lot about that company's ability to attract talent. They can post people from these cushy jobs at Google, but they get back massages every day.
1: Don't you feel like people are just doing this anyway and that all, all you're doing is putting a structure around something that people have been doing forever, which is like using where somebody worked or where they went to school as like a filtering yeah, or a, a sorting. Yeah. But like, they're not doing it quantitatively the way that you are, but they're be- like in our business, uh, you know when you're meeting somebody that used to work at SAC mm-hmm. because within five minutes, they're going to talk about they're Stevie. They're
2: going
1: you, yeah. <laughs> uh, like they're telling you a story that, about-
2: What is our collection?
1: Yeah, no, no. It's like intimate. Like, yeah, one day Stevie and I had lunch and we were, you mm-hmm. know, like that's, so it's like, oh, you worked at SAC. You want me to know that. The reason you want me to know that is because you know- that now I'm going to treat you like you are the god that you are. Mm. That's like a thing that goes on. Same with – I went to – same with – uh, I played lacrosse Goldman. at Duke. I worked at Goldman. There's like certain things. So you're saying like you can actually assign a value to these things. Not that it's foolproof, but you can get some sense of like a company's hiring – Yeah which will not show up in the accounting.
2: And, and by the way, just to be clear, like the gradation between your, you know, top five schools and your top 20 schools, top 50 schools is actually not that big. Keep in mind, there's like thousands yeah, of, yeah, yeah, of yeah. institutions. Right. And so, you know, I'm talking about the top t- five to 10%, which is still hundreds of institutions. Like if you go to the US, U.S. News and World Report, you can actually like look at the top end schools and like look at the performance of companies that hire disproportionately from each of these tiers. And, you know there is certain certainly some gradation, but it's all you know once you kind of drop past the top, say fifty or so.
1: Okay, so that's a, one component of like all of these things that you're looking at. Yeah. Okay, and it's like a very non-traditional approach to try to assign values to these things, yeah. numerical values to these things. Okay, what made you get inspired to do that?
2: The overall struggles of value investing. If you look at you know the, the Russell One Thousand Value Index, every value investor the, the by the way, the yeah. Intelligent Investor was written in
0: 1949.
2: Yeah. World looks world looks a little different today. That that's that's all I'm saying. Yeah. The world looks a little bit different today. Right. And if you just step back and think first principles, what are the things that are different today? Well, the you know things that create profits, platforms, p- network effects, platforms, brand, you know, human capital. I think Warren Buffett, who's a value investor, said it himself. He said we now live in an asset light economy
3: yeah. where
2: the you know top companies that produce earnings are no longer like your GE or your GM. Where they require physical capital, yeah. they are you know your Googles and your Facebooks. Right. And so, first principles, you say, okay, these are the assets that allow us to produce growth and produce value and future cash flows. How do we actually assess how much human capital company X has? So, you know, we can one of thousands of things you can do is we can look at you know the edu- educational background of people. Do they you know um, do they have PhDs? Do they have masters? Are they STEM? Do they have training in AI? Um, what colleges did they attend? Um, you know where, what companies did they work for prior to um, working for Company X, and then you can look at like cultural things. So I, I look at Glassdoor to find you know which companies have strong cultures. The idea being that like you know you can assemble a dream team of the five best players, but if they don't pass the ball, you're not going right. to accomplish anything. Right. And so companies with good cultures tend to be able to motivate, align, retain their employees better. And you know at the extreme, you can think about you know we live in this knowledge economy now, where the entire game is effectively HR. The the only value in most of the organizations that we work in is our ability to attract and retain talent. That's the entire game. This
0: is amazing. I'm looking at your ETF. So you have an ETF, by the way. Uh, We're
1: like not allowed to say the ticker or something. No,
0: I can. He can't. Uh, No,
1: I think if we say it, then he can't. I can say it.
0: Uh, Fine, it's the intangible factor. But don't tell me what I can do. It's the intangible factor.
1: No, there's like a regulatory thing where he will literally dematerialize into the ether if if something happens. Come down from
2: the ceiling. Can I say what the name of the ETF is? I don't know. Can he? I can say whatever I want. I Kai think, can't I, say think it. I think they going the, the power can, to the, the client building. I think can google it themselves, they'll find it.
0: All right, fine.
1: So, all right, Kaiwu no, has no, no, an ETF. call that. I can
0: say it. It's an intangible value ETF, okay? <laughs> now we're all getting pinched. Stop. All
2: right. So, this <laughs> <laughs> <what we> <laughs> <laughs> Uh, So I'm
0: I'm looking at your site and you got this balance sheet decomposition thing. This is one of the prettiest things I've ever seen. So your holdings, you break them down into intellectual property, human capital, network effects, brand equity, tangible. This is gorgeous. What am I looking at? Yep. So... You're looking at marketing, Michael. <laughs> no, this is, so let me just take one more thing and then, then I'll give you back the mic. So you've got the, in this intangible. In this intangible factor exposure, you've got PhDs divided by price of, of the companies in your ETF versus the S&P. You've got patents, you've got R&D, SMN, SN, what's SMN, is that marketing? Sales and marketing. Sales and marketing. Uh, you've got all of that compared to the S&P. So what you're doing on intellectual property, all of this sort of intangible stuff is so much different than what we're seeing with normal value ETFs. What are you doing
2: differently? So think about what a normal value ETF does. They look at metrics like earnings yield. Book to market. Book to market. Yeah. Um, dividend yield. Yeah. So the question there is how much book value, how much trailing 12-month earnings do I get per dollar invested? All I'm saying is you know, maybe book value doesn't mean as much these days. And what might matter more is human capital. And so as one proxy, you know, obviously not all PhDs are created equal, is how many PhDs do I obtain per dollar invested? How many, how many patents do I obtain per dollar invested as a measure of IP? And so you can kind of see where I'm going with this, which is the idea being as an investor in a company, what I'm trying to do is obtain the most, um, you know, intangible value per dollar invested.
1: And then you look at that versus a traditional value approach. And first of all, you're going to end up with a wildly different portfolio, depending on how you're waiting. Like you're finding winners based on this. The stocks that you think uh, proscriptively will be winners are going to look very different than what a traditional value firm would find, or not always.
2: Yeah, the, the sector competition is quite different. So the problem with traditional value, so price to book, is it's heavily biased towards old economy, asset-heavy companies. Yeah, right. they can't
1: own, they're not gonna own biotech, like no. we already know. Right. But you're, you, you you're, might you're, end up owning a lot of biotech.
2: Exactly, if you're not gonna give uh, a biotech company credit for its IP, then you're not gonna own it, obviously.
1: Right.
0: So so can we maybe make a weird pivot? We've been speaking a lot about your stuff. I'd be curious to know what you think about the current monetary landscape, given your macro background. We've got a weird situation, right? Where the Fed's gonna be tightening, the market is tightening ahead of that. If you were doing macro right now, what the hell would you even be? Like, did 2020, 2021 break everybody's macro models?
2: (laughs) So yeah, um, I'm a recovering macro guy, I guess. You know, I I did used to run a, a global macro hedge fund, um, and you, even then, I would stay away from making this bet. The kind of timing rate cycles is super hard. It's kind of like the widowmaker trade. You think about it: you know, interest rates basically went up until 1982, and then went down for the past, you know, 50 years or so. And so you have like hedge fund managers who are just like losing their shirts for 20 years, just consistently betting on rates going up, um, and it just hasn't happened. So you know, with that with that in mind, um, I mean, yes,
1: great big takeaway, like if the big takeaway this week is that the price of money is tightening. That's right, yeah. In, at every level. Like, the yield curve is not even steepening. It's like- it's, it's flattening. It's flattening, but like, when you look at one year, two year, five year, the stuff that really matters for borrowing- It's going up a right. lot It's going fast. up a lot. Yep. So when you look at that from somebody that had a ma- has a macro background, um, what are we to make of- the, like this environment, like what would you say are the things that you look at it and see, maybe see differently than others?
2: Yeah. So I think if you, if you talk to all the great macro investors, like Ray Dalio, for instance, yeah. they talk about this idea that instead of forming a view first, you should start with expectations, figuring out what is the market baking in, what are the market expectations? And and then ask the question, where is what they're saying just totally wrong? Where is it like just totally off base? And that's how you form your varying perception. Right. Um, so if you think about like the 10-year bonds, I think- and you might not have one. You may not have one. Yeah. And, you know, that's kind of where I am, to be honest. Like the 10-year yield's at 1.8%. We all know the 10-year bond is just an average of, you know, the 10-1-year forward rates. Yeah. Um, the current rate's zero. So back of the envelope, without even looking at the full yield curve, rates are set to normalize to mid-threes in 10 years. Yeah. Doesn't seem too crazy for me. I don't think that I, you know, have a crystal ball and can predict otherwise. Right. The big question is, you know, will rates- I mean, obviously, we're starting to, you know, barring some more variants or, you know, some kind of, you know, massive, you know, terrorist event or whatever, we're starting to kind of enter a new hiking cycle, a standard business cycle going back up. And the question is, are we going to be kind of undulating around a level that's similar to where we have the past 20 years? Or is there a chance that, you know, this is the beginning of a 30-year trend back towards, you know, 1970s-style no well, got no to,
1: We only got to a 2.5% uh, percent Fed funds rate in 18. And at the end of that year, the market was like, LOL, I dare you. Uh, I dare you to try to get, get this overnight rate higher. Yeah. I don't mean to be so,
0: sound so confident or cocky, uh, but I just feel like the demand for money the amount of money pouring into bonds at 2% is just going to be- At 0% it was yeah, huge. Yeah, it's just going to be a ridiculous tidal wave. It already is. I I just can't foresee just in, based on supply and demand dynamics, interest rates rising that much more. And obviously the market could prove me very wrong
1: very quickly. That's just, that's just yeah, my opinion.
2: No, I, I agree with you. I think the only way it does is if we have runaway from inflation. In right. the
1: context of your ideas though, like where might the impact be felt? And the reason I ask is, I think a lot of what's gone on in the last five years has been predicated on very low rates, like we more recently zero. But invest, to me, this is my perspective. Tell me what you think. Investors are now starting to ask tougher questions of companies who are pitching themselves as, don't worry, we're going to build network effects because we're first, we're early. Everyone's going to be here. It's going to be worth X. That argument loses some of its saliency when- there's an actual interest rate attached to money that you've raised from investors or a competing risk-free rate that's not zero. So, and that's one example. There's a lot of others. The, and the EVs are probably a really great example to bring up also. It's like, okay, I get it. The thing that you're building is beautiful, right? It's, a, it's like, looks like a Tesla. It's better. It's faster. It charges fast. I totally understand that. How the fuck are you gonna make 50,000 of these a year? You would not unless we take some of the the money at least and start building facilities. And then once you start doing that, then it's like, oh, wait a minute. I'm going to pay 5% a year on this money. I'm going to give it to you. You won't have an ROI on it for six years. And all that time, Ford and GM are going to be producing competing vehicles. And that's why you see these things all getting, I think – getting cut in half in the last couple of weeks.
0: Remember Enphase Energy? We were talking about the stack. Well, well, well let me finish Sorry. my thought.
1: Lucid and Rivian. And, Rivian. and Rivian have amazing patents and IP mm. and PhDs coming out the ass. That might not matter if if money starts to cost more, at least in the short term. What do you think about that?
2: Yeah, so first of all, yes, they do have IP and yes, they do have talent, but they are super expensive, right? right. I mean, they're either billion Multi billion dollar companies, are so you can't, are, so
1: you can't completely throw out the valuation paradigms of the, the old school. Exactly, that's right. why
2: we're not looking at buying all the companies with the most patents or the most PhDs. We're looking at buying the companies with the most patents PhDs divided by price. Right, right. Okay. And in this case, that's what kind of rules them out. Same with Moderna. Moderna has great IP, mm-hmm. but you know they're just. Went up like 10,000%. So,
1: did that stock just
2: go from
0: 500 to 200? 500 to 167. <laughs> what the hell is going on? Dude, this market is savage. Well, like, it, seriously. no,
1: in Moderna's case, it might be because everybody has COVID. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it might their markets <laughs> are market <Rivian>, saturated.
1: Rivian <laughs> went from 180 to 64. <laughs> Moder- Moderna's vaccine against COVID in this environment with a million cases a day. Is like if Boeing was making planes that crashed once an hour. I mean, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just. No, no offense to Moderna. I'm sure they saved a ton of lives, and this would be a lot worse. But it's kind of hard to be bullish on vaccines right now.
2: But that—that's the question. Going back to what you, what you were saying, which is, is this already priced in? So yeah. Moderna is already down. I don't know, sixty whatever percent. Um, Maybe just like the bonds have already priced in the interest rate hikes at 3.5% in the next 10 years, perhaps the stock market has taken a cue from the bond market and is also pricing that in. And that's why we've seen so many of these like SaaS stocks and these, you know, Arc, Peloton, whatever, um, underperform so much.
1: Um, Michael asked me a question this morning in the car. Uh, We don't live together. I picked him up. Corporal. But he asked me what? We were talking about like – Will the market ever get to a place where they're not excited about blank as a service or subscription fees? And Well, let like, me set those,
0: this up. Is that what you asked? So I was talking about – this is timely for Kai because Matt Levine just wrote this. Did you read his piece yesterday on Web3 Network Effects? I did, yes. So Matt Levine spoke about how in network effects businesses, these things can be self-fulfilling. And a fake business can turn into a real one. And here's what I want to get your take on. And this basically describes what we've been experiencing the last decade in terms of Silicon Valley subsidizing the consumer. Exactly. He said, the Web 2 version of this trade is central to the story of the last decade in the US tech industry. We sometimes called it the movie pass economy. Do you remember movie pass? Yes. <laughs> that was hilarious. What was it,
1: $10 a year was, where you go I've, to unlimited movies? What, that,
0: whatever, that, that went belly up real quick. So but he they said, had network effects. He said, this is the idea that venture capitalists would subsidize consumers' lifestyles because they valued customer growth above everything else, including profitability. Um, is that changing when the cost of money is more than zero? Like the idea that venture, that, that Silicon Valley was going to subsidize all of this forever. Um, is that a fool's errand or, or is that really permanent? Like, I feel like that's like the biggest question in the market right now, or one of the big questions. I
2: think that's a very fair point, right? If you think what the dynamics of these businesses, the idea of network effects is, you know, as you get additional users, the value grows in a non, in a nonlinear way. And therefore Um, the whole entire game is to get to scale. Once you get to scale, you own the market. It's really difficult for competing networks to unseat you. And so it's almost like, you know, investing all this money up front for this pot of gold at the end. And now the question just becomes how much
1: money- Best example of that's like Facebook, Instagram. Like once everybody's there- Uber then it's worth more to the user We were their just friends kinda, there.
2: Right, no one wants to go into a social network with Where just one is. other guy. Yeah, right. exactly. No okay. one wants to wait 30 minutes for an Uber. It's like okay.
0: Robinhood's, well, not today, but they were going super quickly, still losing a billion dollars, but whatever, being subsidized.
2: Right.
1: Well, that no, that's not... Uh, he's mean, talk, no? But he's talking about, because he's talk, was talking about like network effects. I don't know that... I, I don't know that Robinhood's quite the same thing. Robinhood's more like, can I find somebody else to pay for this in a non-traditional way? This is more like- Is Robinhood not a platform?
2: Robinhood has a platform like um, economics. I mean, they're not, not as strong as like an exchange itself, right? Like NYSE or CME would be you know, higher up my higher You don't my care
1: left. how many other users. If you're on Robinhood, you don't care if there's a billion other users or five other users. It doesn't affect your experience as much as Instagram, Snap. Exactly. That's where the yep. network effect really matters. Those are where really the matter. truly strong ones. But what's are, so yeah,
0: interesting, but- and this is an outlier, but like Twitter is like the ultimate platform network yes. effect type company, yes. and the yes. fucking stock sucks.
1: Yes, that's true. Well, not you- all pl- not all platforms are good at wringing profits out of right. their users. But so they, they still have the network so effect.
2: Yeah, so they have the network effect from the standpoint of they own the microblogging, whatever you call it, like market. They are the one of the only people in that space. Now the question is, is that a market worth owning? How do you actually monetize that? And that's you know almost a separate. So issue. how do you
1: value network? So we're gonna talk about the platform economy, and you've written so much about this, and we're gonna to link to a lot of the stuff that you've written. But like, how do you value network effects in looking at stocks? What's the what's the metrics that you're using besides just obviously size? or number of users or whatever.
2: Right, size is the biggest thing. Growth rate, looking at, um, you know, your market share. Um, So, you know, I I think I, in my paper, talked about like the food delivery market with DoorDash, Uber Eats. And you could kind of, so it's super interesting. There were, you know, initially like five to seven different folks competing. And by the end, kind of DoorDash became like the clear winner.
1: You had mer- mergers and
2: right, know, a lot people. of acquisitions, and um, and it's also very localized. It's pretty interesting. Like if you look at the map of the U.S., like Seamless was still like pre- holding on pretty strong in New York, probably not anymore. Um, but like pretty much everywhere else, Doordash had kind of like taken taken over. So there's right. kind of these localized network effects as well. Right. Um, but
1: yeah. So dating, sw- dating apps. This is very important. Right, obviously.
2: It, I mean, yeah, that, that's exactly right. So the, all these network effect businesses. Uber. If you think about it, it it it's not. It, it's not. It's an age old model, right? So the the spice markets, right? Of right. you know the ancient Middle East, or you know shopping malls are even a, a form of platform, um, and they have network effects. But the reason why you know Facebook is in its league of its own and has managed to become a trillion dollar company is because the internet has allowed you know the number of people um, involved in the network to go from a thousand to like you know three billion. Right. And when, you, when that happens, the you know, value to the network is exponentially increased. And, and that's why you see so many platforms are technology or information communication technology companies.
1: Right. Like I'm invested in Simon Properties. And when you said shopping malls just now, I was thinking like if they have a lot of empty stores, people will stop going. Right. If people stop going, they will have many more empty, empty stores, stores subsequently. That's right. Which is probably why they started acquiring the retailers that were going bankrupt mm-hmm. and standing them up. <laughs> Just so they could <laughs> well, they tr- could maintain truly, some sort they own of, Brooks Brothers now yeah. because you don't want to have empty Brooks Brothers like in every a mall in the country, right? What I are mean, you filling that with
2: you know, the best analogy for platforms is as a government. Right. If you're a platform like your Facebook, you're you're kind of like a mini, you're a Zuckerberg, you're a mini king, and you have this little empire where you have all these users and your right. goal is to you know create a flourishing ecosystem where people are super happy, like posting, creating content, <laughs> and then you kinda of like tax the citizen happy. You, happy. you, you right. take you take you take their money. Yeah, no, you um, take their happiness. Yeah, you take their you happiness. First and first take and their then you take their happiness the money. <laughs> <And> you turn <laughs> it into money. Um, and so you know, that that's the point, which is in the same way the government, when they saw you know the banks were failing in 08, they had to bail them out because they realized that these these are these are part of our like citizenry these are people that we need to kind of keep our little little world functioning
1: you said this is from your piece in december 2020 writing about platforms platform co- i think it's like your stab at like a very simple definition that everybody could immediately grasp platform companies externalize the means of production they do not own homes or employee drivers. Instead, they profit from orchestrating networks of external consumers and producers. So Buffett talking about asset light. That's, to me, that's another way of saying also asset so light. Airbnb comes to mind immediately. Yep. Yeah.
2: They're a classic platform company.
1: Right. Now, if you're traditionally looking at stocks, and you're saying like, just picking Facebook as an example, they make tons of money, by the way. But in their earlier in their earlier format, you would say like, I don't understand. Why is this company going public worth $40 billion out of the gates? They've only done a few hundred million. Can in they monetize mobile? Remember that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But somebody looking at the things that you're looking at would say, oh, it's only a matter of time because take a look at what the network affects, you know, what, what's All happening here. Business.
0: And then a value right. investor would buy Facebook in like 2074-
1: When everybody left the platform. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yes, because it's much cheaper now. That's right. Okay. Uh, You said that the number – this is the end of 2020, so I don't know if it's different or the same. The platformization of the stock market is not just about splashy IPOs and tech giants. The number of platforms in the top 500 US stocks has steadily grown from 40 to 100. What does that mean?
2: So – the trick here is that there's no kind of standard definition of what is a platform, right? We can sit here and debate whether, you know, Robinhood should be a platform or not. And, you know, reasonable people will come to different conclusions. Does everybody
1: say they're a platform now, though? Yes.
2: Everyone says they're a platform because it sounds good. It makes your valuations go up.
1: That's right. Okay. And that,
2: that's part of the problem. But the problem where's the
1: 40 here. to 100? So you're saying there's 100 companies in the Fortune 500? Right. So So I had that to create my own platforms. definition.
2: Like there was no accepted standard. So what I did was I used machine learning and I said, let's use as a definition of platforms these two articles from these professors um, about platform competition. I went through the articles. They're from like the mid-2000s, so before like Facebook became Facebook, yeah. and redacted all the company names. And then said, all right, now I'm going to compare using machine learning these articles to all the 10K business descriptions um, going back through time for all companies. Okay. And so what you find is you know, a company like Uber, when they describe themselves, they say straight up, we are a technology platform, we connect drivers and riders on a two-sided marketplace, well it's obviously a platform that scores highly. A traditional business would score lowly. And so what you end up with is in real time, so point in time, as the world, as each 10K comes out, you can see which company is scoring high on platform and which are scoring low, and you kind of just create a threshold and define a basket of companies that are sufficiently platform. And that's um, how I get to the number 100, where what I'm saying is if you look at the evolution of the stock market over time, the number has grown from like 20 to 40 to 80 to 100, which is where we sit today. Right. But what's really interesting is, you know, th- those 100 companies include the five tech giants, which are 25% of the market cap of the, of the S&P. The most important so platforms. So 40% of the market cap of the S&P are currently platforms.
1: Like Amazon is a platform simultaneously. It is a platform that other people have built their platforms on. That's right. Because it's AWS. Just thinking
2: about this, I know we spoke
0: about this at the top of the show, but comparing this S&P to the S&P of the 1950s is such a joke. Yeah. Right? And I know there's some big principles that will never change. Like obviously there is a limit to this sort of stuff, right? Like companies trading at uh – you know, if the Cape was 60, I mean, we, you know, I'd be a little bit nervous. But like, it is just a fundamentally different economy today yeah. than it was back then. And I yeah. think you have to treat it differently. So I
2: think a very important thing to note is that the, just looking at industry composition, right? right the the economy of 10, 20 years ago was a bunch of banks. industrial, A bunch of, you know, energy, Exxon. Energy, exact, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, yes, of course, the P's and the price of the books, you know, look more expensive today because the market's mainly software. Right. But is that to say that you should compare apples to oranges? Like, should you compare the PE ratio of today to ten years ago, which is effectively what Schiller PE is doing, right. by the way?
0: Right. Exactly. And also, profit margins uh, fundamentally changed. Right. Uh, growth ma- growth rates of the giant companies fundamentally changed. We've like Amazon, well, Google especially. Like the top line growth is still it's hilarious at the size it w- the size and the growth rate.
2: Right, and it's because we've never seen that before. It's because of intangible assets. Right. Intangible. I think there's a quote from Carl Shapiro um, and Hal Varian where they talk about how. You know the industrial companies, the GMs of the world, which used to be equivalently, you know, dominant in their time, could never have grown to the size of Google and Microsoft today because their core asset is physical, whereas we now live in this digital world.
1: Right. They could. They couldn't have simultaneously had customers in 200 countries around the world as quickly as Facebook was able to. I feel like
0: what you just said is the key insight to what we've been living through for the past decade. And it sounds so obvious. What, how
1: big a company can get now versus- yeah. yeah, there were limits. There were limits to growth. The back limits then. were in atoms. Right. Now they're in bits. Who said that? Um, was that- th- I did not just make that No, no, up. no Somebody famous said 100%. that. 100%. Anyway. Oh,
2: I think Josh said that. No. Oh, I think, it was Betty. I think it
1: was Betty White. So I want to make sure that we get to Web3. <laughs> okay. Because like, first of all- I could talk to you for hours. I feel like yeah, I, I, feel, yeah. I feel like we, we like dance around these topics, but you've actually like done a lot of like rigorous work. In our
0: Slack over the weekend, I wouldn't stop sending them your charts. I was like, and one more thing. I just <laughs> one more thing.
1: Are we going to do some of these Web3 charts? Yeah, let's get to it. So okay. wait,
0: do you mind if we get to it?
2: Yeah, 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 that's, that's cool.
1: Yeah? yeah, okay. You sure? Yep. Like a lot of people are going to see this. Okay. Okay, cool. So let me set this up. This is you. Uh, Web3 is attracting a flood of investor interest, but is shrouded in hype. And speculation, we believe a value investing approach can help. We adapt our intangible value lens to the value crypt- to value crypto. So this is that intangible stuff you've been talking about with the stock market. You have now turned your attention with that lens, uh, like Sauron in Lord of the Rings. The eye has moved across the landscape. Over to Web three. Yeah, this post was so good. Uh, oh we also God. build Web three industry classifications using ML AI, machine learning, and uh, money laundering. Yeah. And, okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, finally, we create crypto stock portfolios by tracking investment and IP. And this is the this is the bomb dropping moment. No, it's but called the,
0: excuse me the coup de gras.
1: The coup de gras. Um, but basic. But basically, <laughs> let's talk about let's talk about what's similar to looking at stocks when you're looking at coins and tokens, and what's very different.
2: Yeah. So I think the overarching framework is the same—that um, there are four pillars of intangibles plus tangible value in stocks. In crypto, you really have those four, and then tangible is basically not important. There's no
1: intrinsic value because that, there's no right. financial. There's no. How, what's the right way There's no cash flow. No cash flows to model.
2: Right. So you a can't. You can't on. really do a DCF on a token because they don't have. They're more like commodities where their value is driven by supply and demand. Staking doesn't change that. Staking could change that, but okay. staking is, is it's kind of an artificial thing because it's- It's a derivative.
1: Yeah, the, the yield you earn on staking has- It's from lending it. It's not, the coin's not generating the, the yield. Th-
2: that's right, yeah. Okay. It's, it's not right. that like if you own an Ethereum, you get like a dividend for doing that.
1: Okay, so what's our four pillars again? Remind everybody.
2: So it's IP, intellectual property, yeah. brand equity, okay. human capital, network effects. I'm going
1: to stop you right there. The coins themselves don't own any of those things. The communities do. That's right. So you're analyzing the communities- That are involved in the coins. That's
2: right. So it's – the value of a token is derived from the intersection of supply and demand – Supply is generally either fixed in some cases, like or, Bitcoin, like Bitcoin million, or it's like you know pretty well controlled. It's not like the U.S. dollar, right? Okay. Um, and then so my while he's no, go ahead, about go doing yeah. any charts. Yeah, we got that. Okay. Yeah. So what that means is that the value of a token is going to be driven primarily by the demand side of the equation, which in turn is driven by demand for the network, right? If you want to use the Ethereum network, you need to pay gas fees. You need ether, right? Um, and so the question then is, how do you derive? How do you kind of decompose the value of a project. And it's the same kind of four pillar framework here. Network effects are extremely important in crypto. Like certain meme tokens, like they're mainly brand obviously. Yeah. Um, and then your kind of more infrastructure plays, like your file coins tend to be more driven by IP yeah. and human capital. Are so,
1: network effects more important in layer one versus layer two or does not work that way?
2: I, I would say yes. yes. So layer one is very much like an OS. It's like iPhone and a- iOS and Android. So if you
0: don't if you don't, users, you got nothing.
2: Right. So I mean, the only point, the point of Ethereum is to serve as a foundation for, you know, your L2s and for all the apps and the NFTs and things that are being built builders. on top of this. Aren't ecosystem. that many
1: layer ones necessarily needed to, be, that you need to pay attention to right now? As far as I know, right? this, there's four. Solana,
2: well, really, well,
0: three are be built. Solana, Ethereum, uh, and Avalanche. And I put Bitcoin, Bitcoin, you don't really, you're not building on top of that. Are those the big three?
2: Yeah, that's right. I mean, Binance as well.
1: That's, th- you, that's a layer one. OK, so, uh, so let's, let's talk about what
0: you did. So you applied your factors, the intangible factors, and you created a portfolio using the top 15 percent based on uh, like an equal weighted scoring yep. of these.
2: So I did the exact same methodology I did in stocks where I said, let's take the Russell 1000 and rank all the companies on their price to X, X being their intangible value and, you know, buy the top, say, 10 to 20 percent. I did that exact same thing, but to tokens.
0: And what did you find?
2: And I found that the strategy worked very well. How well? Um, very
0: well. <laughs> All right, I'll say it. It outperformed. This is a back test, of course. Yeah, it's a back test. The, the back test outperformed even even gross or net of transaction costs. It outperformed by forty percent a year. A single transaction. We're
2: gonna
1: cost. flash on screen how you can send us money. Yeah. Uh, right so,
0: now. So 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 okay. So what? Yeah, exactly. What this showed was some of the things. So in below, what what, what do we call it? These, so are these network effects or what is this
2: exactly? Yeah, so these are the actual underlying metrics. So you know, I mentioned before, like patents are a proxy for IP. Um, Glassdoor um, reviews are a proxy for culture, which is human capital. So what I'm doing here is I'm saying, let's look at, so one of the really cool things, just step back for a second, in Web3 is it's being built in the open. Everything is open source. And what that means is for the vast majority of Web3 projects, you can actually go to their GitHub page and you can download... Um, their entire development history. So like every single commit that's going into their repo is available to you as a public investor. And by the way, you can see how commit many- Commit
1: is a developer who says, like, I'm working on projects now so for a comi- Ethereum. A
2: commit's like a change to the source code, either okay. addition, deletion, right. um, like a merge or a you know, fork, things like that.
1: Okay.
2: Um, so you can look at the activity through time. You can look at- like. Well, why how... are you also
1: writing about like develop, individual developers, like how many of them are saying I am now-
2: that's Do, right. Doing so the,
1: Solana only.
2: Exactly. So the human capital side is you can also look at who is committing, who who is actually what, working yeah. on this thing. Okay. So, you know, Project X has 5 contributors, then it has 10, then it has 20, then it has 80. That's obviously b- very bullish. They're able to attract you know a lot of talent to help build this project. And you that's, a saw, great, you, that's
0: a great signal. You saw that in Solana, not you personally, but if you were doing this at the time, maybe you were, you could have seen, you could have foreseen Solana. Maybe Solana's a one-off, but you could have seen the activity
1: coming. Well, Can you walk us through that example yeah, of, yeah. of like what you spotted going on in your metrics in Solana before the price went crazy.
2: That's right. So Solana is the fifth biggest token now. It's, what is it? 60, 70, well, 70 billion Once. or something yeah. like that.
1: Not to brag. I have several Solana. <laughs> you have a bunch of Solana. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: 70 billion Solana.
1: No, like several individuals. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Not that many.
2: Um, it was trading at a $10 million market cap yeah. a year and a half ago. I mean, that's just kind of crazy. 10 million. Crazy. It went from a $10 million market cap to a $70 billion My market God, cap in a year yeah. and a half. That's just insane. But what's kind of interesting is if you actually go back to that date and you can look at, you know, how many followers on Twitter it had back then, 90th percentile, I think. Um, How many, like, um, how active their GitHub repository was, 99th percentile. And this is against all projects, not just small projects, their size. We're talking about compared to the entire world of crypto. So
1: you're seeing, like, these percentiles, you're seeing, like everybody is tweeting about this or everybody is starting to work on these projects. That's right. So, and the price is still a $10 million total market cap. That's right. So you have to know there's an explosion in price coming. If this many people on GitHub are doing this many things to code using Solana, right.
2: you know what, what happened as, as you know, is that there, there ended up being huge congestion on the, you know, Ethereum network. And so people were looking for alternatives. Solana had a strong founding team. You know, Anatoly is very, very good in his team. And, they built like a lightning fast network um you know that was super cheap, and it attracted you know developing developers who wanted to build on their ecosystem. It attracted potential users who wanted to um you know transact using the Solana platform as opposed to ethereum and you know before you knew it, it was a seventy billion dollar and the ethereum
1: company. people couldn't kill this in the in the like strangle this in the cradle like they couldn't say to themselves, we have to do something immediately with the protocols or whatever. To stop all of our top minds from getting too excited about this other thing, that- so
2: I mean, I, I think I think crypto guys are less of a it's less of a zero sum game. There, like you, if you listen to Vitalik speak, yeah. he actually speaks kindly of Solana and some of the other competing um, L ones. Give it time. Um, give it time. Yeah. Um,
1: wow. So, like you, you ever watch like a mafia movie and they're like somebody will kill someone over who has the right to mow the lawn on this block? <laughs> We're talking about like 70 billion in Solana, how much is in how much is in ETH? 200?
2: It was about 500 at one point, maybe so, a little I mean, less the, now. The oh,
1: numbers wow. we're talking about like entire countries have gone to war over significantly less money. Yeah. So I actually find it amazing that there's not like I don't want to say actual bloodshed, but like there's not more uh fighting. But there's a lot of fighting
2: though. There's is there just so much opportunity that nobody's that
1: the, stepping on each other yet. That
2: would be I mean my charitable view would be, look, the entire uh, crypto ecosystem is one and a half trillion market cap, which is like the size of Apple, right? So from their standpoint, they're saying, look, if this is truly web three, if we can truly displace the existing media, financial, internet, like complexes with this new framework, like the – we're talking about 10 to 100x where we are now. And so like so, let's right, not fight like, stri- each other.
1: Right. Why would we be getting into skirmishes now at this early stage? So right.
2: Kai, yeah. you,
0: so you, so this, the strategy that you put together, again, it's a back test, but this, this is a, this is real data, not a back test. You look at this versus the market, the GitHub contributors divided by price, four times the market and the market being the, so you, Josh referenced via, via, your post, there's 8,600 coins out there. Right. How many have a $50 million market cap? 400?
2: I think it was like 600 or something. Okay. A yeah. lot.
0: Uh, the Twitter followers divided by price, triple the market. Daily active users divided by price, six times the market. I mean, this is like intuitive stuff. Once you break it down the way that you did. Right. You did something else that is super super interesting. You looked at what if you want exposure to the blockchain or crypto, Web three, whatever we're calling it, via publicly traded companies. Oh yeah. And so you looked at blockchain patent holders, and this this blew my mind. John, do we have this? So John, this is Exhibit thirty nine. By far, by far the number, of, the biggest number of patent holders in blockchain is IBM, and then well, then Alibaba and Bank of America.
2: So let's talk about this. Yep. So first of all, IBM just has a lot of patents based in, based in general. You could. Um okay. so that one of the things I did do was put together a portfolio. I didn't a, even see this. A portfolio of public equities with quote unquote crypto exposure. And that can come in the form of patents. It can come in the form of hires. Hires, yeah. Right. So one thing I looked at was you know, what companies are you know posting a lot of jobs that are looking for like Solidity developers, for example. So
0: Coinbase was number one?
2: Coinbase was obviously number yeah. one because they are a crypto native company. Um like um like Silvergate, um, Signature, like the, the banks that do the crypto were, were ranked quite highly. And then you have all these guys in traditional tech and finance. Um, so first of all, this is a little bit misleading because I did not scale by size. And so IBM, just they just are a patent machine. They love patents. Um, right. They have the most patents of any company in the world. Wait,
1: what size is this in? The companies themselves? This is the
2: number of patents. This is the number of patents that no, these companies hold. What's the hold. order though? Or ranking just, by the number of blockchain, no, just patents. number
1: of blockchain patents, yeah, right? Got it. So if you okay.
2: adjust as a percentage of their total patents, it's no longer like as impressive.
1: Oh, okay, fair enough.
2: But it, it is still quite interesting that you do see, you know, significant investment by you know legacy banks and and um, tech companies in the space. But
0: so, how about this? Like, I'm looking at so you had another chart: crypto employers, crypto jobs divided by the total jobs. So Coinbase, obviously, DigiNex, so it's, it's, it's all crypto. But then, like, this is this is surprise to me. Cisco is I'm just eyeballing it like 15%. IBM is not far behind. You've got General Dynamics and Franklin Resources. But what are
1: they What consi- are those What are what those do companies consider doing? a crypto employee though?
2: Yeah, so there's so I do there's two ways of looking at it. So one way I look at it is um, a job description with a crypto reference in it. So hey, you know, we're hiring somebody to work on our blockchain team. Right? So they may be a sales guy, but they are working on blockchain. So that's a kind of your like your more like lenient definition. And then you have one, the more strict one is jobs where blockchain or crypto or something like that is in the title itself. Okay. Um, so. Like
1: chief I, like chief blockchain officer. Senior would,
2: blockchain
0: lead.
1: So I know you're like okay. scraping
0: the data, but did you dig into any of this? Like general dynamics and Franklin Resources, what are they doing in, in blockchain? That's a good question. I, I don't.
2: I general dynamics doing initially. things
1: in blockchain is terrifying to me. Probably they make, su- they make w- missiles?
2: Maybe supply chain management stuff, it would be my guess. I don't know. It's just a guess.
1: What, about, what about financial services and blockchain
0: like Vanguard? Uh, I forget. They made a splash a couple of years ago that they're doing something with their trading. I can't remember exactly what
1: they're doing. Well, that's at the heart of like what Professor Galloway was saying is like, name one company using a distributed ledger for anything other than coming up with new ways for people to gamble on, block, on, uh, on crypto. Like, you, you heard a lot of blockchain announcements in 2017, 2018, because that was, like, the thing to do. But, like, who's actually doing anything with this stuff other than crypto companies? I don't know the answer. I'm asking rhetorically. Yeah. But, I, like, I, to my when I see your, like, I know Walmart talks about NFTs or whatever. What are they actually doing there? Or is it still too early to, like, actually grade companies on all right, you have the patent. What are you doing with the patent?
2: Yeah, I, th- I think it's still too early. If you think about like the kind of S curve, right? The you know early adopters, the mass market. These are largely mass market companies, companies who have like thriving real world businesses who are now dabbling in Web three stuff.
1: Dabbling is a good way to put it. It doesn't cost them anything to put out a press release and say something crypto related.
2: Right, it probably helps them. It probably makes people think that they're a cooler company. Yes. So here's
0: the thing: if you're not if you're not in crypto it's very difficult to penetrate. If you want to learn about it, if you're just a layman, it requires a significant amount of time to educate yourself. Where do you start? It's very confusing, it's very overwhelming. And so as a result of that, the only thing that people have exposure to are the promoters, the JPEGs selling for millions of dollars, and it just all sounds like bullshit, all of it, right? If you're on the outside looking in. But you show a chart of network growth. And if you can separate the promoters, the, the nonsense, from the people that are going to work, from the user base, so you see daily active users up 30% a year since 2014, daily transactions up 37% a year. What and are so- they
1: calling a the user? Somebody that has exchanged one coin for another or somebody that has bought something with, with crypto? Like- these, are, these are your wallets. So okay. So
2: active addresses, act- a- addresses that have been have made a transaction in the past day or month. So
1: that's the number that you're saying is growing thirty percent year over so year. So the
2: normal people, even people that know about this, uh, are not seeing
0: the growth. Are not seeing the builders, right? So I'm not I'm not saying that people that are poo pooing blockchain are wrong. All we see are, are, are reasons for it to gamble. With
1: all, with all due respect, though, what they're also not seeing is a usable product. Not, not yet. yet. So I, I I agree. You I mean you have to admit yep. there's nothing you could do with crypto other than buy crypto. Right or sell it.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's yeah, there, the use cases are still very limited. So one thing I looked at was well, you could
1: buy NFTs, which is another but it's like another form of crypto. I'm saying like there's nothing, there's that's nothing true. that the <laughs> regular person who is not on the internet 18 hours a day today, can tangibly Fact. sees yeah, today. crypto. Here's what you could do with crypto: you could buy the fucking naming rights to uh, an NBA stadium, <laughs> <laughs> like 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 literally Lambo. Like you that's what they that see. Actually, they yeah. don't. <laughs> They don't see like a product or a service that affects their life. And I I get it yet. Yeah. But with the internet, again, with all due respect, if you heard about the internet for the first time in America in 1996, and then a year later, your uncle bought a book from Amazon, it wasn't as fucking bullshitty as- the 13 years so far of bitcoin's well, existence well and
0: the other thing is people the the people that are saying bitcoin he's fixes us this, he's
1: watching us fight the people <laughs> that
0: are the, uh, the people that are so f***ing loud and obnoxious well if you're going to make those grandiose claims then where's the beef mm-hmm. right so i understand the detractor saying listen asshole all you do is say bitcoin blockchain fixes us bitcoin fixes us where's the beef show me the beef so i i get the pushback. why does my life still suck and
1: blockchain hasn't fixed it yet yeah <laughs> I, so I, I i get both sides not to play both sides. So we do so get it. Could I ask you about um traditional Wall Street because on your chart it did show a lot of there a lot of banks on there who are making a lot of investments in not just blockchain but tech overall and the banks are obviously very sensitive to every single day waking up and reading articles about how they're about to be disintermediated or whatever. This is from um Julie Verhaj at Fintech Today. Shout out to Julie. When JP Morgan reported earnings last week, You might've seen a lot of people look twice at one number in particular, 12 billion. That's the amount the company plans to spend on technology this year. I don't have a number for how much everyone trying to disrupt JP Morgan is going to be spending, but I'm betting $12 billion is more. And in the press release, they basically say that 6 billion of that is just maintenance. So that's just to maintain their tech stack. So the question is, how really will decentralized whether they're DAOs or projects, whatever you want to call them, how will they really disintermediate a company that's willing to invest twelve billion dollars in a year on tech, six billion of which is just to keep the servers on? Like what? What? Like what's your take on how threatened these financial companies really are, given how, the rate at which they're investing?
2: Yeah, my, you know, look, everyone loves a David and Goliath story, yeah. right? Everyone likes to you know cheer for like the underdog taking Josh's down, Goliath. taking down the, the Goliath. Um, but yeah, I mean, th- these companies are not standing still, right? JP Morgan, you know, Goldman Sachs employs like ten thousand software engineers, yeah, one quarter of their workforce, yeah, right. Lloyd Blankfein got up there in two thousand seventeen when he was CEO and said, "We are a tech company." And he wasn't lying. That's the crazy Gal- thing. Goldman has
1: more engineers than Coinbase, right. Robinhood.
2: So these, these companies are not like just taking the standing still. Um, they are you know pretty smart. They have some disadvantages. As you point out, they have to spend $6 billion just to kind of stand still from a tech standpoint, which is a huge liability. It's crazy. Um, but where's the other $6 billion going? That's the question. And I think – you know, going back to the thing we first talked about. But what do you is, think they're doing?
1: Like, what do you think they think is the next thing? Where, I, where is it going?
2: I don't know. I don't have a uh, eye into their uh, right. into their thoughts. Um, I think the in general, I'd say the way to to look at this would be to look at tracking patent activity and tracking, um, you know, tracking uh, human capital investment. Right. So, like, an article came out on the FT pretty recently where they looked at you know Zuckerberg and they said, look, Meta platforms. Um, They claim that they will invest $10 billion per year for the next N years into the metaverse. But what exactly are they doing? And the FT actually went in there and went through all the patents that have been granted recently. Um, Obviously, this is all with a lag and found things like product placement in the metaverse or like a digital (laughs) store to buy goods in the metaverse. I mean, all kind of obvious, but you can actually start to see where these guys' heads are from their patent activity and then the other thing you could look at again is the hiring patterns. So JP Morgan actually, I look I was looking at this for this other project, is actually hiring blockchain people. They have this Onyx group, I guess. I don't really know this kind one of a payment network. Um so they have you know you know a few dozen job applications there, but obviously that's not the major main thrust of what they're trying to do. But you know, maybe if you really wanted to dig in, you could you could look at where they're trying to attract talent in for what divisions and, and with what skill that's sets. It, that's interesting. You know?
1: I'm sure hedge funds like forever have been going through patents like yep. to try to understand like where, where things are going. It's, it's funny when you picture like how obvious this is for Facebook. If they think that people are going to spend a lot of time in the virtual world and their whole business model is putting ads in front of them. Yeah. Then obvi- obviously you want to have a way to do that hey. when they're walking around with a helmet on.
0: Kai, can we talk quickly? This is getting away from us, but How do you measure company culture and like how quickly does that shift before it's reflected in price? For example, like how would you pick up and maybe this is a separate conversation, but like the intangibles, uh, I know intangibles and culture are the same thing, like Peloton, for example, right? Like how would you have picked up on employee morale, for example, or user morale? Like how, how does that rear its ugly head?
2: Yeah. So not talking about Peloton specifically for the, for the culture stuff. I mean, here's the thing. There's no one, culture is not one dimensional. I think too many. there's like been basically no success, no no good academic studies on, you know, linking um, culture to future stock performance. There's like one Don't or
1: two. Just look at insider selling. Peloton insiders, Peloton insiders 500 sold mil. five hundred five hundred million worth of stock last year. That's Granted, brutal. a lot of that was in an automatic selling right, plan. Right, automated. But still,
2: <laughs> I mean, this I think says that, the stock is going okay.
1: down the entire year. So,
2: so let's talk about Peloton. I think. I mean, this is like a topic, topic worthy of itself. I mean. What's happened there? They're down, you said 90%, like, 80%. Legit, Isn't yeah.
1: that a marker of corporate culture? You have a stock price that's in decline, however statistically you wanna gauge it, you wanna use a moving average or whatever, and the, their selling is relentless. Isn't that better than Glassdoor? I does,
0: it does, is insider selling indicative of anything? Maybe off-schedule it, insider it selling. Is,
2: yeah, exactly, you have to, off-schedule, you have to, yeah, off you have to re- remove all the kind of right. um, automated selling. Um, it, it it is a signal, but it's just been so picked over by quants at this point. Oh, okay. Um, it's, in the, it's
1: in the market, much
2: value in general. Okay. Um, but I mean, certainly it says something. I mean, remember when Elon Musk sold like a bunch of Tesla stock?
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, well, uh, we haven't spoken about uh, individual investors as part of the market. Are, are they are they messing with your signals with your factors at all? not just yours in particular, but like have insiders, uh, not insiders, have individuals that are now such a big part of the market uh, distorted it might be traditional it. factors at all? If
2: you're looking at I think they've network effects, they
1: might be more helpful.
2: I think they've been very helpful because remember, like if you think like 10 years ago, you know, how would you get a handle on brand, right? You kind of like, you know, look at some surveys and things. Nowadays, it's all Twitter. It's all social media, Reddit, um, Facebook. Um, and the, the, you know, this is the opinion of thousands and millions of individual consumers who are going online, chatting about a brand, and then thereby shaping and influencing brand perception. Um, you know, the same is true as you mentioned on network effects. Um, same is true on Glassdoor. Uh, you know, we don't go and you know go up to the CEO and ask him if his company has a good culture, because obviously he's going to say yes, right? You know, Enron had the word integrity in its office lobby, yeah, you know, yeah. the day it went bankrupt.
1: Everybody has great culture. Right?
2: Everyone has a great culture. Right. But you go to Glassdoor, and from there, you can look at thousands of employee reviews where you can see, you know, with, you know, a lot, with tourism in the crowds, you know, what is it that the, what values do the rank and file employees live day by day? So I think the rise of, like, digital data, the rise of, you know, individual actors has been helpful. Have you spent, t- have you spent time in Glassdoor, analysis. though?
1: Like, have you like looked at it away from the data, just like read the reviews themselves? I have. Yeah. Okay. So not to pick on, I'm sure this is working in your model, but just like speak, like thinking out loud, you might see a lot of hype for a brand somewhere like Twitter where nobody actually buys the thing. Yep. Influencers repeatedly are having these cheerful, uh moments on Instagram where it's like, I thought you guys were my friends. Why didn't you buy my diet tea? Mm. Like this was my big thing and you didn't do it or my workout videos or whatever, Glassdoor is almost all disgruntled employees. There nobody, are, yeah, nobody leaves a positive review. Nobody's like, I love working at this company so much, I can't wait to review it for other people to come work here. So like,
2: it's interesting. you I've, have to factor that so in. So I've actually seen the opposite. And again, Take in, take, keep in mind, the study I saw was a Glassdoor-sponsored study, but they looked at I like— I can't Yelp- believe
1: that came out positively. Yeah, That's they, weird.
2: They looked at Yelp reviews, okay? All right, All right. <laughs> bad, bad, They looked at Yelp reviews, and they found a bimodal, my bimodal distribution. It's either fives or ones. Same with Amazon. Fives or ones.
1: So the thing oh. so no, All right. So nobody's like a three. Like, yeah, it was just okay working so, here.
2: But here's the thing with Glassdoor. So in order to leave a review, you know this, is you have to have work there. In order to see other people's reviews, you have to have put a review in. It's like a give-to-get model. So I think that is a somewhat regulating mechanism. And it is the case, according to this Glassdoor-sponsored study, that the distribution is a lot more normal as opposed to bimodal. Hmm. Okay. So to take it with – I don't know. I mean that's that's just what I've seen. Yeah,
1: Yelp is like – I love that I hated it. Yeah,
2: exactly. Either you're complaining about your food being cold or it's the best thing in the world.
1: Because who has time to be like just OK? Right. You can't really be doing right. that. OK. That's interesting. Uh, Michael wanted to ask you about Theranos and Holmes. No, you did. Oh, did I-, I? Excuse me. I, thought it was you. I think I think it was you. Oh, but I, I'm curious too. <laughs> so there's a private company. There's there's not as much information. So if you were a private investor and Theranos was like sending you their pitch deck, you would look at that shit and be like, oh my god, I have to get in. What could you have looked at considering that they're not public? They're not doing the same amount of filings as, and it's not a crypto thing where there's all these open databases.
2: Right. So so first of all, I mean. Private companies patent all the time. Um, private companies have Glassdoor pages as well. Okay. So you know, so, some stuff out there. Yeah, there's no 10Ks, 10Qs. There's no like um, earnings calls that are kind of required. I mean, obviously there's still media occurrences where perhaps you might have been able to detect some deception, you know, if you were paying attention. Um, so there's still data available here. Um, uh, so, I mean, I would just look at that, I guess.
1: Yeah, it's not a complete, it's not a complete black hole. Right. It's just, you don't have as many data sources. Uh, we're gonna talk about the war for talent. You were, talk- we we're talking about the great resignation and just companies repeatedly saying, I can't get people to do like the stuff that I need them to do. Uh, and usually the answer is we'll pay them more. But is it is it really that that black and white or is there something just about the types of companies people want to work for now?
2: Yeah, so it's, it's pretty interesting. I think the common narrative is that it's mainly blue collar workers who are dropping out, but it turns out it's also white collar workers e- equally. Yeah. And it's not even like, Everyone wants to work for Amazon. And no one wants to work for... Dude, you
1: just founded something. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like, you're, you're kind of part of the great resignation, aren't you?
2: I guess so, yeah. You yeah.
1: Apple
0: is engin- offering 180 grand, like a special bonus to their engineers to retain talent, something like that. That was a, a month insane. ago. That's insane. That's insane. I don't know if it was a bonus or salary, something. It was, it was... But it's everyone. It's affecting everyone. If Apple is, immu- is, is not immune to this, nobody is.
2: Right. Their company has a sterling reputation. They're a huge company. And they're having trouble keeping their talent. So Where's ha-
1: everyone going? Well, they're starting their own companies. That's what's that's what's going on. They're they're going to crypto. They're going to AngelList.com and they're raising money and they're starting their own thing. Uh, so how how do you so how do you look at stocks through that prism of their ability to hire or retain talent? Like,
2: why well, is that think, important? Well, I think it it means that this idea of superstar talent, right? The idea of like finding the next you know Barry Bonds or Tom Brady or whatever is becoming you know increasingly important because fewer workers are required to do the job of many workers. Right. right Technology gives so us uh, so much more leverage um that um so that there's that that that's coming into play. Um, you know, culture is becoming increasingly important. I, I saw a study the other day. someone sent me where they talk about um you know many of the factors that would have predicted a lot of the resignation, and lo and behold, culture is a very important um tool that companies have to retain their top employees. What do you mean? So you know they they look at similar stuff with glassdoor um data to say, you know, companies, job satisfaction measured, not just by the star ratings, but also just by the text. Um, also like the extent to which companies are, you know, being talked about in the context of like throwing happy hours and like doing kind of things like flexible work hours, hybrid re- remote work, all these types of things that are kind of perks for employees. They have actually helped retain talent. Could, as well. could
0: you measure employee turnover? Does every company disclose that or no?
2: They do not, not in ten ks. Yeah. So that can be measured in other ways, right? So, for example, you can look at you can Don't go. Don't even
1: and, give these ESG people any ideas. But, but that would be the would next be, mandatory disclosure. That would be super meaningful if well, you could see that.
2: To, I mean, to your point, the only human capital disclosure on the ten k is like number of employees, headcount.
1: So then you can kind of do the which math is kind in of cra- <laughs> which is
2: kind of which kind of crazy that that's the only thing because like.
1: Hirings versus firings. You're telling might be me that interested. the
2: CEO and the janitor are equally valuable. You have no idea, like net. You know net additions. We don't know you know gross. You don't know turnover turn metrics. Oh, what about what about part time uh, workers? What about
0: C suite comp compared to the average employee? Does that have any predictive uh, power?
2: I not that I have seen. You're welcome.
1: I just gave you alpha. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but did you look at it?
2: I have not looked at it. No. I, I'm, I, I'm sure that's been looked at though.
1: Yeah, I just I feel like how much how much is Tim Cook being paid versus the average employee? Probably Apple shareholders are fine with that. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Like, I, I don't know that's automatically a negative if it's high. Or automatically great if it's low.
2: I think the big thing, the biggest factor driving CEO comp is just the size of the company, right? Which is which is why, by the way, empire building exists. Because I'm running a great company, but I'm like, I can get paid two X if I double my company. So I'm going to acquire a bunch of small companies so I can get paid two X. Yeah.
1: So we have so much more that we wanted to do with you. So we're going to have to have you back for sure. Um, but we're gonna go into favorites, okay? Just in the interest of uh, in the interest of time. Do you have fun so far today? Um, what do you think? Had a blast. All right, so we're gonna do the actual recording in a few minutes. This is okay. the yeah. warm up. Yeah, yeah. You guys have everything plugged in yet? Yes. Yeah. All right, we're ready. Uh, let's do favorites. Kai, you go first. Um, what What did you bring us this week, which we all be watching, reading, listening to, whatever?
2: Yeah. So I my favorite read this past week was a blog post by Moxie Marlinspike. CEO of Signal. now that's was, a
1: fake name, right?
2: I, I wasn't that, sure a, if it was a, is Netflix that a name character. From Harry Potter yeah, yeah. Or, <laughs> yeah. okay. or maybe an exotic fish. Moxie Marlin Spike. Sure. But so look, this this guy, he he's just some kind of cryptographer, so he knows what he's doing. And he wrote an article called My First Impressions of Web Three.
1: Bullish or bearish. Bearish. I know. I'm so kidding.
2: and and there aren't that many good skeptical article. I mean, there aren't many articles in general because either people are ultra bulls or ultra bears. So it's not that interesting.
1: But he wasn't like he wasn't like Galloway like no. pissing no. on it. He was just saying like there's not that mu- there's not as much here as everybody seems. In to fact, think.
2: Galloway I think he Galloway used him Galloway to piss, used him yeah. and then t- took his argument and then like ten x you know, amplified and it. then
1: linked to it didn't use his name so it sounded like it was. Scott. Galloway, yeah, yeah. that's how, that's what happened. I do that shit too. So, I can't even talk shit. All right, God.
2: No, this article is super interesting because he actually went out and and built an NFT, right? He actually built this thing. Said you know the only way to find out if this is the real deal is do it myself, and so he builds this NFT. He on, quote
1: did the work.
2: He did the work. Okay. Yeah, he builds this. He builds this NFT on OpenSea. Okay, and it has this weird characteristic where like how you view it changes what it looks like, and for whatever reason. OpenSea believed it violated the terms of service and took it down. What? Yep. Oh, oh the, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry.
0: I thought you were talking about the article. I was like, wait, how did they do that? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, the asked to the yeah. question.
2: Could we just like keep it
1: on this for a second? Not to be like a boomer. Dude, it doesn't matter. Who the f*** yeah. would buy this? He did this as, it, did this as would, a like, He did this as a joke. He wasn't
0: doing this to make money. He was doing this as John, a joke. John,
1: am I over my limit? F-bombs? He did this
0: as a... No, you got more to go. How many as, more do I have left? He did this as a f***ing joke. It's like team fouls.
1: He did this as a joke. He did uh, – I understand he did it as a joke. But honestly, this doesn't look very much different from things that people are doing as not a joke. Come Sorry. How
2: on. much did he sell this for? Go, go up. I think he says like – $8 trillion. Yeah, there's like, there's like actual money on this. I can't remember. ten forty thousand. 40000 Who knows? He actually sold this.
1: Somebody put $40,000 into this guy's I uh, joke. I hope – did he give the money back?
2: $38,000. Did
1: he give the money back? Yeah. I don't know. Okay, who was the buyer? Andreessen Horowitz. <laughs> okay, continue. <laughs> we can do, don't, don't get scared. Mike's terrified. Well, I can't. I can't say a sixteen z. What do you mean? I'm terrified. No, I'm just kidding. Uh. All right. So, so what was the so what was the conclusion of, of the blog? We're all gonna read it. So but.
2: so the point being that OpenSea they remove this NFT from their marketplace, and then he goes to his his uh, Ethereum wallet to look at his NFT, and it's gone because the wallet itself hooks into the OpenSea API to get the image. Oh, so basically, I hate when that
1: happens. Okay. I hate when that
2: happens. all, yeah. yeah. And so basically the po- his point is, look, Web3 is more centralized than we think. There are a couple of companies like Alchemy and Fura who like control like a significant part of like the the value chain and that without them, you can't really Wait, do it. Wait, who
1: did that? Who removed the NFT? OpenSea.
2: The- yeah, it violated but that's like the terms of service. That's
1: like a dude in a headset. That's not – the blockchain didn't remove the thing that violated the terms of services. Well, right? that
2: that's the interesting thing. So yes, when you buy the NFT, the the – all you're buying is a link. So in the blockchain, you, there's a link to a pointing to the NFT itself. Right. Um, and so what OpenSea did was, I mean, they obviously can't remove that, right? But they, but they can That's remove- That's immutable. Yeah, exactly. By definition. Right. But they can remove whatever is being, being hosted and shown on, on OpenSea's own servers.
1: Oh, wow. So it still exists on the blockchain, technically. Yeah. But you just can't view it because OpenSea is a centralized- Private company that right. does what it wants to do.
2: And so his point is that, look, you guys are talking about decentralization. That's your whole thing. And there are like, you know, one, there are a few companies that within each vertical control, like run the entire show.
1: Packy hated that argument. Uh, we're going to have Packy in here in a couple of weeks, but like, uh, so we don't have to have that now. But I do think that these articles are informing people like me who are not living, e- eating, sleeping, breathing NFTs. Uh, or or Web3 stuff, but just, like, the debate is really interesting. Do you agree?
2: Yeah, no, look, to be clear, my mom's an artist, and I, yeah. you know, I'm totally, you know, excited about the vision of NFTs and empowering artists and the creator economy. Um, obviously, there are some things that need to be worked out, and, you know, Vitalik said it himself. In response to this article, Vitalik um, says, look, I, I, I get that we're not where we want to be now, but, you know, we hope in at some point to achieve this dream of decentralization. By the way,
1: if, if, if your mom could sell a piece of art and... It's an NFT, and every time it gets resold, as the artist, she retains some rights to the royalties, or however that works. And it's centralized.
2: Who cares? Is that's it, right. Right. So can so it be both? That's that's very much. Yeah, it, it totally can. That's very much the the question, which is, there are going to be inherent trade offs for decentralization, right? Decentralized things are just slower. Like you could argue that the blockchain is just like a slow database, and that Ethereum is just a slow computer, right? Right. Um, and the question is. What hill are you willing to die on? Like, how much do you care about decentralization? Is it important to you? How much do you care about, like, Mark Zuckerberg not. And everybody's you know, at a different part well, of it. Well, Solana
0: structure. says Solana users don't care, right? Don't that's care. how it got
2: so big. That's, exa- that's exactly right. They're, they're saying, look, we're owned by VCs, we're a small company, we just centralize everything. And guess what? And we're, we're 50 like 50 times X, faster. Yeah, we're like 100x faster than Ethereum. And so the question is, you know, as a- average consumers, how much are we willing to sacrifice most people, to not be Zuckerberg's pond?
0: Most people, most normal people, don't give two shits about about centralization or not. Right. I think I think the hardcore. Well, if you like
1: there. the centralization of Solana, you'll love the concentration of power over Avalanche, which I think is like sixty percent owned by the the people that created it. Still right. Or, or you like could that.
0: just use like Visa. Yeah, Duncan yeah. looks like <laughs> Duncan looks like uh, Sylvester Stallone and over the top. I haven't seen that. Oh, <laughs>
1: so he turns the hat around. Yeah, yeah. When he when, when he's, he's a, about to uh, arm wrestle, dude, it's a dude.
0: movie. He it's an arm wrestling movie with Sly
1: well, Stallone. You had a to. son.
3: You can't arm wrestle with a hat. So do you he's know why his hat's driver.
1: backwards? Because he looks through the lenses with his eye, and the brim gets in the way. Yeah, Duncan was, was filming. me today that's for a, a, a half-time report. Um, all Duncan, right. how how worried about centralization are you? Not very.
3: Uh, not not too much. Okay. You guys are making me feel bad with that thirty eight k figure of my NFT I created. Oh, there so it is. Hasn't sold. I that, never... that guy was <laughs> such a badass. <laughs> like, that's that all NFT. So that's just alone. <laughs> no, I created an NFT a while back. And that, that guy's there.
1: the final boss. Who uh, bought your NFT? Somebody no that listens That's what to I'm saying. Combat? No one. Everyone's just like
3: it? making jokes and selling them for forty grand. I created one for real. And it, it's got like five views. It, it like,
1: you never showed it to me. I can get that thing yeah, bought right out. now.
3: We, well, <laughs> no, I'm not. I, no. Is it centralized?
2: Definitely not going
1: to share. Yeah, it's hey, very Uh Kai, what does Glassdoor say about Duncan's NFT? I, do, I don't it's know.
2: It's okay. It tight. tight. All
1: right, let me do mine real sorry. quick. Um, this is Sunday night on HBO. Sunday night on HBO is now awesome again. The Righteous Gemstones-
2: Oh, is that good? My
3: wife
0: just said Literally
1: makes me laugh out loud. Do you ever see it? No. You like Danny McBride? Do you know who that is? Who's that? If I show you a picture of him. He's bounding
3: and down. You'll know the picture so, of him.
1: So the guy, oh, the shirtless guy at the top. Okay. Okay. He's a good looking guy. Yeah. Yeah. He's extremely good looking. That's definitely not uh, a real picture of him. <laughs> uh, John Goodman? John Goodman steals the show. But like, honestly, it's I think it's the, like one of the funniest things on TV. And What's the basic t- premise? They're a family of uh, televangelists. They're like a billionaire family in the deep south. Basically like scamming everybody and then internally they all hate each other and they're all – it's like succession. Like John Goodman is like obviously not going to live forever. It's a comedy. And they all want to take over this uh, hustle. Comedy? Oh, it's a drama. It's, it is not a drama, dude. It's hilarious. I can't wait. It's Danny McBride. Right, I'm in. You'll, you'll laugh so hard you'll cry. Um, Euphoria, which I have a teenage daughter. I don't I think know I'm why out. I do this to myself. I think I'm out. It's, it's a tough watch, but I love it. The first episode was tough. I'll tell you why I can't stop watching it all of the soundtrack all of the music is 90s hip-hop inexplicably these girls are in high school now on the show <laughs> and they're all very much into for some reason jay-Z and biggie so that kind of like keeps me they're very good actresses uh actors I should say dude the show is the show season two just started the first episode t- is one of the craziest things that I've ever seen yeah, on TV that was a tough watch and I don't even, even want to go any further uh, uh, all right, Anything else? what do you got
0: um, I'm reading Sebastian Maliby he has a new book. He wrote the best book ever on the history of hedge funds called more money than God.
2: It's right behind you. Oh,
0: there it is. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, that book's amazing. He wrote another one about venture, uh, called the power law venture capital to Making the new future. Mm. And I'm reading it. I think it's out sooner out now. I learned that, uh, oh, January 25th, 2022 perfect time. It's coming out this week. I learned that Don Valentine got Atari on the map.
2: Hmm.
0: Atari was like this fledgling company, and he introduced them to Sears, who blew them up.
1: I was gonna say, how do you how do you get a video game on the map before there's video games? Like you can't buy ads on Twitch. Like how do you even? Do he that? got them in into, 1980. He, it was 1970, 70 something. A like trade shows. He got them into Sears. This book comes out this this coming week. Yeah, it's good. Should I read it or should I listen to all the no, podcasts no, from people who have read it's, it? it? It's
0: long. Um, I'll, I'll give you the TLDR. I read money. more money than God,
1: right. but I don't like. Probably three years ago. I'll
0: give you the TLDR when I'm done.
1: All right. Awesome. Hey, do you have fun? so you had a good time today. You're going to come back. We have like three more things we didn't get to with you. Okay. Uh, and by the time you get back, we'll have even more. Uh, everybody, round of applause. Round of applause Dude, for, was awesome. for Kai's first appearance on the show. We appreciate it. That's a real in-studio audience, you guys. I don't know if you know that. Uh, John, great job today with the charts. We appreciate you. Duncan, you killed it. Backwards hat. Ready to arm wrestle. Hey, guys, if you want to watch the video from today's show, go ahead and check out youtube.com slash the for the latest in financial blogger fashion. Make sure you go to our web store. It's idontshop.com. I repeat, idontshop.com. We have a lot of good stuff in there. We uh, appreciate you guys listening. We'll be back next week. Have an awesome weekend. Have a great week. We'll see you then. All right. Take us out. was that good was that fun yeah it was awesome you killed it bro thanks you like know a lot of stuff
2: we kind of jumped around like it was fun it was so fun